welcome back, my Mindset Explorers, to yet another episode of The Art of Mindset with your host, Brian LeSage. I'm going to just say it. I have to say it now. Today's guest is just one that really encapsulates the reality of what happens when you strive for greatness. My conversation with Tanya is not just a journey of humble beginnings to transformative triumphs, but it's an inspiration. It's instructive and it's filled with nuanced lessons and tangible takeaways. I got more from Tanya's episode than probably any other episode of a podcast that I've had thus far. So I'm going to leave you with this. I'm just going to throw these out here. You want to know how Tanya navigated the complex path of success? We all want it, right? We all want success, but how does she do it? She gives it to you in this episode. So what strategies did she use to kind of help guide her intuition and develop her mindset to achieve her goals? We got you. And then Her insights are not just mere theories. These aren't just ideas. These are actual practical guides that reshape the entire approach of personal growth and entrepreneurial ambition. So if you're listening, buckle up, stay active, listen throughout. Be prepared, listeners, because this episode isn't just a mere interview. It is an exploration into the multifaceted dynamics of success, intuition, and self-discovery. With Tanya's wisdom as our guide, we're able to embark on a journey that is unlike any other episode we've had thus far. You could seriously transform your entire understanding of what's possible. So let me ask you, are you up for the challenge? And if so, let's dive in. Yeah, I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Like anybody that doesn't know, we've had a conversation outside of this previously, and it's gotten really fun to get to know you more and have that that conversation with you of just learning who you are and what you have to offer to the world. So I want to say first and foremost, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's always fun to do things like this and anywhere that I can help somebody you know, learn from my mistakes and, you know, my life, uh, you know, I'm always happy to do so, even if it's just to get a great laugh. <laughs> That's right. That's all life's about. So having fun in that regard, it kind of makes me feel like I need to real. Just kind of rewind the wheel of time, if you will. And the best way I like to do that, and it's kind of one of my favorite questions, is who was Tanya on the playground? Who were you as a child growing up? Um, yeah, I was the, well, if I was in school today, they would probably have me on all kinds of drugs, but I was the hyperactive kid who would never shut up, (laughs) who, you know, was like the chihuahua on crack running around, you know, the playground. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, I was a high energy kid. Yeah. (laughs) So, and I was extremely mischievous. 
Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's totally makes sense in all of it. So with that, were you, were you able to release that in a healthier way or like, what was that like for you just growing up? Because again, I think, uh, I think for the components of understanding of just the mind, a lot of things happen through our childhood of what we've been brought up to, what we've been raised through, what we've struggled with just growing up. So with that, was there an outlet for you? Was it just like, Tanya, go do Tanya stuff. Have fun. Bye-bye. Well, it helped a lot that we grew up on a farm. And so, you know, I had, I mean, we were out in the country on a farm. And so we had animals to take care of. I had horses, pigs, chickens. I built a fort. You know, I played sports um, with, you know, all my, we were the only girls in the if you can want to call it a neighborhood on our road, you know, you rode dirt bikes to your neighbors. Um, but I mean, it was, you know, go for a walk in the woods, you know, take the horse out, um, you know, play with the animals. We had, um, a baby calf that we had to raise. Um, the mother uh, died in a, in birth and that calf was like my dog. And so every day I played with it like it was uh, my pet dog. And so, you know, there were lots of opportunities for me to, you know, relieve that energy. And, you know, it was a different time when I was in school in elementary and that we had teachers who just managed us and gave us activities like, you know, go clean the chalkboard, um, you know, take the erasers out, clean up the room. You know, we did those sort of things and, you know, they kept us busy so that we would stay out of trouble. Hmm. Yeah, that that's definitely a helpful, you know, development. I, I, I can't say that everybody falls into that, getting that likelihood of that country life, if you will, of that rural, rural Georgia or rural county uh, area of growing up. So I, I didn't for one get that, but for you, that's a, that's a blessing. And just being able to explore that, that creativity, that imagination, that with the presence of, you know, nature, the world, the environment, all the things, how do you think that kind of contributed to who you are now, just being able to see the beauty in the world? just from that at an early age? Well, I mean, it absolutely contributed to my work ethic and just the way we were raised. You know, you did things right the first time because many times you didn't have a second opportunity to do that because there were a lot of people and animals and things depending on you. And even as, you know, a young kid, the farm down the road from us was farmed by an older couple um, and I mean, this was old fashioned. They still farmed with Belgian workhorses. But when the old man passed away, it was up to us kids to ride our bikes a mile up to their farm at 4 a.m. before school and help with their farm until they could figure out what to do with it and then divide up the chores between their farm and our farm. So we definitely had a work ethic. We definitely knew how to organize our time because everything was regimented, even getting out of school. You know, we got home, we had homework, then chores. And then if there was time left over, then you might be able to watch TV. But really, we never watched TV until Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> and so, I mean, that I, really, you don't realize so much of that until you do get older. 
but that will definitely instill a great work ethic and I mean, appreciation for growing your own food and, you know, not wasting. So, I mean, there are so many things that you learn that you don't appreciate until you get older, you know, being raised on a farm and in the country. Yeah. That's funny. That's, that's, I, I didn't, again, I didn't get that, you know, and I would say probably majority of listeners and people in the world didn't get that same experience of a lively livelihood, what sense, but what, at what age did you start to realize that, oh snap, most people are not raised on a farm. Most people are not given the same reality of me and maybe upbringing as me. So when did that start to kind of make itself aware for you? Well, I mean, you know, it was kind of a mixed community, but I mean, where I grew up, I mean, my high school was kindergarten through 12th in one school and most everyone was farm kids. And I mean, we had, you know, times off of school for harvest. (laughs) And (laughs) so, you know, it was, it was just, uh, it was just a different way of life. And so, you know, it's funny. I, I, we didn't know we were poor until somebody said, you know, started calling us poor kids because, you know, some of the things that we grew up with is, um, you know, when neighbor kids would, that were older than you, or, you know, there were five of us growing up and actually there were more, but, you know, um, biological kids, my mom and dad, um, you know, we, my aunt and uncles, um, lived with us too. So there were seven at one time. But, you know, when neighbor kids would grow out of their clothes or when we grew out of our clothes, we would bag them all up and it was like Christmas and we would go exchange amongst the neighbors and um, and we look forward to that. But we didn't know that that's what poor people did. Um, it was like Christmas to us because, you know, if you had some of the kids who, you know, their families were more well to do, you got nicer clothes. <laughs> but yeah. You know, I think that was a reality check. It, and I remember asking my parents one day, are we poor? <laughs> because we had everything that we needed. We had, you know, all of our needs met. We just didn't have new clothes or new shoes. Yeah, that's it's it's, it's interesting on how that can kind of work. And it's it's a society, right? It's just this defined reality of just saying, hey, look, yeah, well, you don't fit up to the status quo of what's normal, or this is just not what it is. And then all some of these kids just become aware of it and then like isolate you out in that. And that that can be a tough point of just upbringing in that. I'm just raising kids now, or even just looking back in our own lives and saying, oh, well, yeah, I was kind of bullied in that of being called a poor kid. For for that, for you, did you ever feel less than and that kind of Tanya is not worth the value or I need to go oh, yeah. show that I am worth it? Well, you know, I grew up in the time, you know, in the 80s when we had the big recession and my dad lost his job and we lost the farm and then we ended up having to move a bunch. And, you know, and we moved gosh, I mean, I went to several different schools before, you know, I finished high school. And then we, when we landed it at the last school where I graduated, I was bullied so bad because I dressed different. I talked different. I had, you know, just a different 
way of viewing things. And plus I grew up with boys too. So, you know, I had, and I was a farm kid. I had a little rougher edge around me. Um, you know, I was taught to not take any crap from anyone. And so I was never afraid of anyone or, you know, anything. And even though I was bullied terribly in high school and it went on for probably three years, it was pretty horrible. But, you know, I, um, they never became physical because even though I'm a little person, I was a scrappy person. Um, but they just did a lot of horrible things like stacking your lockers, stealing your stuff and, you know, all these things. So, I mean, I was a victim of some really horrible bullying and, and it can definitely, um, take a toll on, on who you are and question your own character. Yeah. For, for you at that point, what, what words of wisdom would you feel as if you needed to be hearing or here at that time that if it's a child that's going through it, a young person that's going through some bullying or anything right now, what would be something that you'd say, I wish I heard this at that point, because now it's completely different. You know, it's a really good question because, you know, as a parent, you know, and then, you know, being on both sides with that. And I saw my daughter get bullied, you know, growing up for a little bit. And, you know, you can say all the loving, kind, supportive things to your kid um, and you can hear them, but it doesn't really matter when you go to the same environment and it's the same thing over and over and it doesn't change no matter what you say to yourself. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, when you stand up for yourself, it gets worse. I think, you know, you know, parents were a lot more interactive in schools and with their kids when I was growing up. And when things like that happened, there was a sit down talk with everyone. And now we don't have that anymore. And um, we are leaving kids to figure this out on their own. And unfortunately, it usually is, um, you know, several against one. And so I don't know that there's any positive words that would have made things different for me. I think um, I think we need to be more involved in the lives of our children. We need to be involved with school. We need to sit down and have conversations with each other. We don't do that anymore. Everybody, you know, fights behind a keyboard or, you know, somewhere else instead of having human interaction and communication and and learning to um, resolve problems and issues. You don't have to agree about everything, but you should be able to get along. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a huge component of what you're, you're kind of nailing on is right there. It's just, there's a lot of critical aspects that we focus upon nowadays that, you know, he, she thinks this way, they think this way, that thinks that way. Like that's against me. I'm not even going to listen to, it. I'm not even entertained idea. I'm just going to castrate it. Right. And just come against it in a negative way. And I think, <clears throat> at least for myself, and maybe you can attest to this as well, is just with the developmental process of just trying to find myself and go against the grain a little bit where saying, hey, look, 
I want to do entrepreneurship. I want to start a business. I want to do something that's just not my nine to five. You have to be okay with doing what the most people are not doing, but then also be willing to hear from most people in a way of open-mindedness of just saying like, let me hear you out. Yes. Well, and here's the thing. I always tell new business owners, and it's something I had to learn over the years myself, because you always think that you have a better way of doing it. You do not have to recreate the wheel. What you are doing is not always cutting edge. What you're doing is unique and different, but somebody has done some aspect of that before. Learn from it and find out what they've done and find out you know, the failures they've had and do it better. And listen to, you know, what's going on out there through people who have experience around you and and learn from them. I have had conversations with many of my clients who have retired well, who have had businesses of their own, retired early. And I have asked them, can I sit down and pick your brain for a day? I want to know what you did and how you did it and how you got there. Where did you find the money and what were your obstacles? Would you do it again? And be curious. You know, you don't, you don't have to agree with everything, but there is something that you can learn in every conversation. Yeah. And I think that for, for you, when did you learn that? Um, I'll tell you, I didn't know that I knew it until I was in the army and I got my first evaluation report. And um, I didn't know if I should take it as a compliment or an insult. (laughs) But when they said on there, stands up for what she believes in, even in the face of adversity. um, I wasn't sure exactly if I was in trouble with it. But at that moment in time, I realized I really am a nonconformist. I really am going to stand up for what I believe in. No matter what, whether it's it goes against the grain, whether other people believe in it, it's, you know, my integrity is what matters most. And even if, you know, it is adversity, I'm still going to stand up for it. And I think that's a philosophy that carries over into my business is that, you know, I am a nonconformist, but I'm also a creative mind to where you know, I've learned how to, you know, figure things out, especially when economy shifts, um, things aren't working, um, you know, conflict resolution, you know, just problem solving. And, you know, it was, yeah, it was kind of an epiphany in the military when, you know, just um, describing me that way, it led to me, you know, looking at myself in a different picture, in a different mindset. And then, um, you know, I actually read a fantastic book that had everything to do with mindset. um, And it was called The Inner Game of Music. And because at that time, you know, I was a classical musician and they had the inner game books for just about anything. But the whole um, teaching of the book was about how to use the right brain and left brain and how to understand the global and analytical perspective to things. And especially, you know, talking about music, how classical 
how the classical brain is much more analytical, but how in the jazz mindset is much more global, but how to tap into both of those so that you can be well-rounded and see both sides of it and come to, you know, like with music, approach, you know, your music, understanding the emotional needs, but also the, you know, analytical part of it. And so I, I kind of, the lessons from that has carried over into everything that I do. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I haven't heard that book, and I'm going to look at that up early here in a second. But it's an old book. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. And then I want to know for your situation and, and getting into it, like, was the military the only option? Was how did how did the military come to be for Tanya? It's just saying. I got to do something. I don't want to go to university or I don't want to go to college. I need to do something with my life. I'm going to go this track. How how did that happen for you? Well, for me, it was my only option because when you come from, you know, a poor family and a family, you know, on my mother's side of the family, they're Appalachians um, from West Virginia. And most of the girls graduate high school, but most of the men do not because they work in the coal mines. And so I come from, you know, no one in my family had ever been to college or beyond high school. And if they graduated high school and, um, you know, my, there was at the time, well, we didn't really, we didn't, think there was any other option for me. I wanted to go to college. I did not want to go in the military, but, you know, I knew at an early age, right around the age of 14, that um, my ticket out of that life was I needed to excel in something. So in school, I poured myself into everything, art, music, academics, sports. I figured something would stick and something would get me out of there. And I had an amazing band director who um, set the course for the rest of my life. And she heard that there were auditions for the U.S. Army Band coming to town. And she prepped me for an audition and took me to the audition. And even though they required you to have a minimum of two years college um, before coming in, because they wanted you to have ear training theory, everything else, um, I passed the audition and then I passed the secondary audition and was accepted into the U.S. Army Band. And so that was my ticket out and that was my ticket to a different life. And then, you know, for me, I knew that education was going to give me options. I didn't know what I wanted to go to school for. I just wanted options to a different life. I didn't want to grow up and play house, which is, you know, pretty typical when you come from a family like that. Those are the aspirations. And so the military paid for me to have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and then I got a full ride scholarship to finish my doctorate. So I've never paid for any of my school. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a testament again to that. That's a system and for sure, it's definitely a, a trajectory for a lot of people that might find themselves in a similar situation for, for you in that of just trying to say, Hey, look, I, I need to get out of here. When, and just again, the curiosity here, uh, when did that realization for you kind of 
develop up of just saying, hey, look, I see the trajectory of if I stay here, where I'm going to go. How did you have that awareness at such a young age? I was a middle child. (laughs) (laughs) How's that? There it is. That's it. Wrap it up, guys. Sorry if you're a first or a last, you're done. Right. Yeah. I got to see, you know, um, everything ahead of me. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I, you know, they say you have that one weird kid. I must have been that one weird kid. But at an early age, at 14, I just, I realized I didn't want this life. I really never even had any aspirations on getting married and having children. Um, I just, I wanted to see the world and I wanted to be educated. And I didn't see any way to do that in our present state. And nor was I really even supported with it because, um, you know, there's two things that poor people don't do. They don't teach you about money and they sometimes don't value education. Now, not all of them, but because of, you know, you have to work to make a living to take care of your family. That's a mindset. And so what is college going to get you? Because, you know, when we have the family farm, we have, you know, jobs in the community. Why, why would you go anywhere else? And that's a mindset. I didn't want it. I wanted a different life. I wanted to see the world and I didn't care where I went. I just wanted somewhere else and I wanted education and I didn't care what. I just and wanted a different life. So I just started, you know, figuring out what would stick and what would be my ticket out. Yeah, trying to analyze that into the component of taking action into something. I'm just looking into that. I'm just saying, hey, look, this is not something I want to do. This is not something I see myself doing, but I want to take an actional step into that. How long were you in the military and the army, I guess? I was six years on active duty, and then I went two years into the reserves. And for that, what did that kind of look like for you of those six active? What, being in the military? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, um, an easily way to sum it up. It was some of the best and worst times in my life, and sometimes at exactly the same moment. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> How awesome. Not the answer you expected? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to work with. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I had some of the most amazing experiences. I, you know, I feel... Very blessed to say that every goal I set forth for myself going into the military, I was extremely intentional when I went in and I I did all of them. I mean, I had three big dreams of places that I wanted to visit. And, you know, for some people, they'll be like, "Eh, no big deal. But for, you know, a small country girl, it was a huge thing. I wanted to see the Statue of Liberty. I wanted to see the Grand Canyon. And then I wanted to go to another country and I didn't care what it was. And the very first gig I ever played with the U.S. Army Band was at the foot of the Statue of Liberty. And I was so emotional about it. I almost couldn't play because I was like, I can't believe this is happening. And so I got to I got to do some amazing things and play and study under a premier flautist of all of New York City. 
I got to play in Carnegie Hall. I got to play on albums. I got to travel everywhere. My second duty station was in Korea. Um, nobody wants to go to Korea. It's a hardship tour, but I asked to go to Korea because I knew it would probably be my easiest way to get to another country. And I absolutely loved it and absolutely hated it at the same time because I've never been so cold in my entire life. I've never smelled food so gross before, but absolutely loved it. Um, <laughs> you get to a point, you just stop asking what it is you're eating because you don't really want to know. Just eat it, you know, and just hope it's still not moving. But, uh, <laughs> and that's never a guarantee. Um yeah. And then my last duty station, I was stationed at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and I got to go to the Grand Canyon so many times. Boom. Done, yeah. done, done. Check, check, check. Yep. Man, that's awesome. And then while awesome. I was in there, the Army paid for me to go to school, um, you know, paid for, started with, you know, my music, paid for an associate's degree, then a bachelor's degree. And then I had um, my GI Bill. I paid for my master's degree. Yeah, and for the for you out of that, I guess again, some people are in that transitional timeline of maybe they're active, going inactive, active into reserves, whatever it be, wanting to think about going into military, XYZ, all of the potential runways, the thought processes. For you, you knew the military wasn't a lifer, right? You weren't gonna be a lifer. So how did you kind of figure your way out? Like you knew education was a component of your exit, right? That's what it sounds like you kind of utilized. So for others, how can they kind of incorporate uh, an exit plan? Well, I mean, it wasn't really that easy. I actually um, was in an accident in the military and it kind of took my music career away from me. So I didn't have a plan A, a plan B or C. All I ever wanted to do was teach and play music. Um, and so, you know, I, I really wanted to do art and be a, you know, a famous artist, but, um, it came down to somebody, I had a band director tell me I would never make anything of myself as a musician. And, um, and I'm just the wrong person. If you want to guarantee I'll do anything, tell me not to. And I, so I had an art scholarship graduating high school, but I needed to prove <laughs> that um, no one was going to define my future by telling me I couldn't do something. And so I played at the very highest level for two presidents, movie stars and all over the world that I came back and said to him, hey, boom, look at me now. And of course, you know, they never own up to it. <laughs> They're like, oh, I always knew you had the potential. I was like, no, you didn't. You told me I should go play sports. So, <laughs> but, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I think that right there was, you know, a a testimony to don't ever let anyone define your future. And from that day, I live by the words that if I'm having conversation with anyone or ask questions or need to know things, the moment that they use definitives with me, like never, always, 
things like that, I stop listening. Yeah, there's a lot of limited minds in in that in that regard, right? There's a lot of realities of people just saying like, oh, you can't do that or you'll never do that or it's only possible if you do this. And it's like that that in itself is very powerful. When did you become I guess aware of that, that like those definitive matters don't matter. Like for me, I'm similar to you, Tanya. Like if somebody tells me I can't do it, sit down, buckle up, buttercup. We're about to show you that this can happen, right? Right. We may kill ourselves trying to do it. We're <laughs> yeah, I'll get it. I'll get it. I'll get it done. But don't worry. <laughs> not, not all people are like us. So for people that are maybe against that or just saying like they'll take that to heart a little bit. How do you, how do we, right? How do we instill that mentality of just saying, hey, look, if somebody says you can't show them up, you know, take that as a bet. How do you, how do you give somebody that a words of wisdom in a way? Well, you know, I think, you know, I think we are only limited by our own lack of imagination. And, um, I don't even think you can give yourself the excuse of lacking knowledge anymore. We have knowledge at our fingertips. Um, I think if you, and if you're not resourceful, um, you're limiting yourself. And I think, you know, it's, it's hard enough by putting our own self limiting beliefs, you know, in our mind, let alone allowing somebody else's in there. And I think, you know, the best advice is stop the noise, put headphones in, you know, for me, I look at the person who's giving me the advice. Um, I look and see where they are in relationship to the advice that I'm asking for. Um, I never take nutritional advice from a doctor who's overweight. I never take financial advice from somebody who's not making six figures um, or more. I don't work with business coaches that aren't at a seven figure level because I need to know how to get there. And if you're already there, you can show me the path. Um, You know, you have to pay attention to Who's giving you the advice and, you know, are they using it themselves? Has it worked for them? Are they successful? And if the answer is no, that's not a person you want to take advice from. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the probably the most powerful thing to so so far is just saying when somebody says that you cannot do that because it's only possible for X, Y, Z, look at that person and see, is that person doing what you want to be doing or are they doing something subpar to what you want to be doing? Because if they're telling you that they cannot or you cannot because of only whatever negative, like you said, absolutes, it's probably a story in which they're telling themselves and all they're doing is sharing that story mindset with you of just trying to, again, suppress you because misery loves company and that is it. So how do you say, I'm only going to listen to the people and where I want to be, right? For me, I surround myself with people of like-minded, right? People that I want to be like, right? People that are doing things that I want to be doing. That is the bigger thing for me. When did that come for you in your life of just saying, hey, look, if I'm wanting to be a business owner, if I'm wanting to start my own business, I want to get my doctorate, I want to get that. How did you find that curiosity of just reaching into the minds because a lot of people are very open when you actually just ask them a simple question of 
showing interest in their lives of really wealthy and financially successful people, they'll share stuff with you. So for you, how did that happen where you were like, I need to start utilizing the people I want to be like as resources? Well, this is not going to be what you expect, but it came from desperation. Um, When I got out of the military, um, you know, I wasn't ready to be out of the military. And because I wasn't a musician anymore, you know, I had a lot of skills because a lot of what people don't realize is that in the military, you don't just have one job. You have a hundred jobs. Um, you know, they send you to, you know, all the schools that they need you to be. I went to NBC school, nuclear, biological, chemical warfare school. I went to MFT school, master fitness trainer school. You know, I was a training, um, NCO training sergeant. I worked admin. I worked public relations for the U S army band for five years at a very high level, setting up these concerts with, you know, city, um, liaisons, you know, governors, everything, but getting out of the military because I didn't have a college degree in that no one would hire me yet. I had five years experience working at a level, no college degree student could ever imagine until maybe 10 years or so into their career. And so I went, you know, a year, just finding whatever would feed me. And most of that was bartending and waiting tables. And you know, someone told me one time, um, why don't you go be a personal trainer? And I said, what's that? I didn't realize that some of my skills for the military had, you know, transferability, like as a master fitness trainer. I mean, that's what I did. I was an advanced personal trainer in the military. And, you know, I tell people, um, you know, if you get hungry enough, you, you'll do what you need to do. And for me, it, I felt so extremely uncomfortable asking for money. Um, you know, it just, I wanted to go in and do the job and help people achieve their goals. But as an independent contractor, which I wasn't prepared for, I wasn't trained for, I didn't know anything about being an independent contractor. I was just thrown into it. Here, you're a personal trainer. Great. Pay rent and, you know, go about your business. Um, you get desperate enough you start humbling yourself and you start figuring it out. And then you start asking, you know, to be paid and then learning to ask what you're worth. And, and it, it's discovering what your worth is and, you know, and that's a journey all its own. But I think, you know, I figured it out because I was hungry and I, you know, didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to struggle And so I'll tell you, after I figured it out, um, it just went straight up from there. I I didn't stay in the gym longer than eight months. I was willing to do what no one else was willing to do. I stayed in the middle of the day when no one else was there because I needed to be there when people came in, when no one else was there and I didn't have the competition and I could talk to people and get clients. And one day a client walked in at the front desk and asked, does anyone do in-home training? I had never done it before in my life. I didn't think it could be that hard, but the front desk girl looks at me because I'm the only personal trainer there at two o'clock in the afternoon. And she says, do you do in-home personal training? I said, yes, I do. And um, (laughs) met the gentleman who wanted in-home personal training. He was the CFO for GE Capital. Um, 
long story short, uh, helped me to land a corporate wellness gig with GE Capital. It was my first one. I put other personal trainers and massage therapists and that together, had that contract for eight years. I put together boot camp trainings around Atlanta. I had five locations. Um, I ended up getting uh, another corporate gig. And then I had all this in-home personal training with high-level um, CEOs and um, athletes all around Atlanta. And I started hiring other trainers to do it. And so you got to be where no one else is and willing to do and show up when no one else will and do uh, and step out of your comfort zone and learn new skills on the fly. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, Tanya, you're a unique cut of the cloth there. I was just saying there, there's not many that. people that <laughs> <laughs> there's not many people that were willing to do that or say like, yeah, I'm willing to, I've never heard of this before. I think I could do this and just confidently say yes. Well, how did that for then. you? Right. Yeah, I guess. Right. So that's it. So how, how did, I guess, yeah, hungry desperation. So I, and I think that is the aspect of it. How do you, how do you agree with the point? Some people are to, to extremist, right. To creating that hunger, creating that desperation of saying like, quit your nine to five, start your business now with blank amount of money, force yourself to take action. How do you agree with that mindset approach? Um, I think that's a terrible idea because when I was training up new trainers, I would tell them all the time, and please forgive me, I don't think that restaurants and that are expendable jobs, but I just don't have a better word. Um, I told them, have a job that you're not going to feel guilty walking away from and do that while you're building your clientele because, you know, they're there's no reason to put yourself in a position of being so uncomfortable and miserable because it affects your mindset. When you are happy, you attract happy. When you're miserable, you attract miserable. And you can't work in a health and wellness environment um, telling everybody else how to be happy and live a great life when your life sucks. Um, so no, be smart about it. You know, work um, around what you have for income coming in, build that in ways that you can gradually, you know, have an exit plan and start, you know, so that you don't have to be that hungry. There's no reason for it. It just, that was the situation for me. And, you know, it, it motivated me to bust tail and, you know, and get myself to a different place. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 totally agree with it you know 100 percent. i say you know there's there's a way to be hungry and then there's a way to be like you're you're almost too hungry where you're desperate to the point of just like willing to rub anything two cents together just to like sell your valuation down into nothing so you have to have a strategy yeah and people see that people see desperation and i'll tell you i had a a corporate owner tell me one time that he could sense a desperation in people and he didn't hire people who had that. He says, because desperate people do desperate things. And it is true. And being a business owner of, you know, 25 years now, I have seen it. And that's why they tell you it's easier to be hired when you're already working another job. Um, you know, it is, it's, 
a mindset. And, you know, yes, I have been desperate in my life, but I've also been willing to work job. There's never been a job beneath me. I have worked some disgusting, gross jobs um, as a means of a paycheck and to support my daughter and myself. There's never been anything beneath me, but it was in my mind, it was only temporary also. Yeah, it's just a it's a stepping stone, right? It's nothing more than just like a, a point of reference to go from one to another, right? Of just saying like this I'm doing for a time. I'm not going to do this forever. I'm doing this till XYZ opens up, till the job opens up, till the career opens up. And that's a, that brings up a huge point of what you're saying there. And I've never thought of it that way of just saying like, you know, when people are jobless, right? Unemployed and they're looking for a job and they're like shotgun approach where they're just like, you know, blasting out all of these applications all over the place. And then they're getting interviews, but they're like so desperate in the interview that it's almost disgusting that like they're not getting it. And then they're, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, yeah, I'm not getting it because I'm not valued or blah, blah, blah. So how do you get, how do you find that balance? How did Tanya find that balance? How did, how did we help other people find that balance of saying, I need to be desperate. I need to be hungry, but I also need to know my value. Yes. So, you know, I've been in situations where, um, because I was desperate, um, I didn't get jobs and it is a mindset and, um, you know, and I can say this because I've I've run the full gamut. I have been, you know, so low where I was choosing which utilities to keep on for my daughter and I, you know, for priority of needs because of not having enough money. And, you know, to a point to where, you know, I know that my needs are met every month. Um, but you know, I look back on some of them now and it was quite a blessing in disguise that I didn't get those jobs. But if you can't, you have to value yourself first for other people to see the value in you. Because if you don't have, if you don't value yourself for who you are, wherever you are, and it doesn't matter the mistakes you've made, you know, the people you've hurt, the things you've done in your past, it doesn't matter. If you don't value yourself, no one else is going to value you. And so if you go into the interview, um, letting the, you know, with the mindset and the, and you don't even have to use the words, but if you have that energy and the feeling that the best thing they can do is hire you, then they're going to know that and they're going to feel that. But you have to go in there with the highest level of value for yourself and know that you're the best thing that could happen to that company because of what you bring to the table. But if you go in with insecurity and a lack of confidence because of your situation, your situation's temporary. And I always tell people, if you can't find it, make it. Even when I went to school, you know, um, the military put me in a situation that it took me four years to be approved to go back to school. And then they let me know at the very last minute, and I mean, last minute, okay, you're, ex you're, um, approved to go back to school. Now you need to get accepted and you need to start in summer. And it was like April and I had to get accepted by UGA, get all my transcripts, everything else by May and start. And then they wanted me to declare a major. I'm like, ah, I have no idea. And so, but I quickly, you know, I, I had my own journey there, but I quickly realized once I decided 
what I wanted to do that I didn't want to work for the, I didn't want to work in the industry the way the industry was set up because I didn't want to make, um, you know, between 20 and 30,000 a year because I didn't want to live, I didn't want to be working poor. And so I found a need and I met that need, but I knew it meant I had to do it my way on my own and not work for somebody else. And so I had to figure out how to do it. And so if you can't find it, make it because we live in the greatest country in the world where you have the opportunity to create your own wealth, believe it or not, even today. You know, a lot of people complain about that, but you can still do it. I mean, I filled a need with my business here and it was not something I ever thought I would be doing. But if you can't find it, make it. Somebody yeah, will pay you for it. Somebody will pay for it. Yeah, I think there's that's a, that's a huge part of it as well. Again, just realizing that, hey, look, there's a need I have a need I ha or I have a knowledge base. I have a skill set. I have something of value to provide to another. And a lot of people walk into the world of just saying like, let me show you that I'm worth it. Then you can see why you should hire me versus saying, if you hire me, you'll see why it's beneficial, right? I will change everything because I am worth it, right? I I will show you that and I will over exceed that. And then you will be like, wow, this is the best hire of my of my lifetime, you know, versus the reality of just trying to sell yourself and it just feels so fake. And that's how I how I feel about anything, being a business owner, being in sales and any of it, just trying to just sell a service to somebody of like when I try to, when I find myself selling, I know I'm not going to get the sale. hundred percent. Never going to get the sale. Well, as soon as I say, look, this is what we do. Here's how we do it. Here's our price point, And this is what's your outcome. And they're like, Oh snap. Tell me more. Tell me more. Right. It just changes the whole gamut versus me just trying to beg them for a dollar. Uh, and, and that for, for regard of that. So for you in the, in the business of entrepreneurship, in the journey of it, was that initial or was that learned later? You know, it's been quite a journey. Um, it was learned later. However, I knew <laughs> after getting out of the military and working, I worked a lot of odd jobs in a short amount of time. I worked some jobs for two weeks. Um, <laughs> and, and there were a lot of great lessons that came, yeah, that came out of all of them. Um, you know, but when I, I knew I, you know, I came to a point, I knew I just didn't want to work for somebody else again. And I knew that I could do it. I just didn't know how. Um, and the one thing, you know, I tell my daughter is that once you're an adult, you can't blame your parents anymore because if you know that you don't know, it's your responsibility to find out. And so I had a starting point of knowing what I didn't know, and that was how to run a business. <laughs> but I started looking up, you know, well, who do people go to? to start businesses and what do they do? And the first thing was looking at the Small Business Association. That's what they do. And so I just started sitting in some of their free classes. And then the college offers, you know, community classes, continuing education classes. And a lot of those were free in Excel and, you know, QuickBooks Pro and all of these things. 
And then, you know, I took extra classes that were outside of my major at the university because I knew that I didn't want to work for somebody else. And so I took a class in small business entrepreneurship. And then from that, I had, I took a class in risk management. And then I took a class, you know, in a couple other in contract law. I wasn't going to be a lawyer, but I needed to know how to read contracts because I knew that I would be dealing with a lot of contracts and I didn't. And, you know, ignorance is not knowing stupidity is knowing and doing it anyways. And I didn't want to be either one. So, you know, you just, you have to take responsibility for what you don't know. And, you know, I will tell you on a daily basis, I learn a whole lot of what I don't know. And, you know, if you're not um, constantly learning and seeking answers, you're going to be stuck and you will never continue to move forward. Yeah, that's that's a huge part of it. And again, just the curiosity, the uh, wanting to know more, the figuring it out, taking the actions, actionable steps. I think that's the biggest part of it. And your words of wisdom to, uh, you know, even your daughter, younger self version of just saying, hey, look, you can't blame your parents for your entire life. You can't blame society your entire life. You can't blame other people for shortcomings uh, forever. You know, just we live in a time where there's such an abundance of information where it's almost overwhelming amount of information that you have to be very strategic in which what you're consuming and what you're getting into. Um, like we were just saying earlier in the, in the, in the show, it's just saying, it was just saying, Hey, look, who is this coming from? Is this somebody I want my life to be like, is this person living the life in which I want? And if not, then bye-bye. I don't really, you know, what you're saying doesn't really matter, you know, and they don't have to be rude about it, but just in the regard of just saying, Hey, look, thank you for that. But in in your in your journey of figuring this out, was there any books or podcasts or anything for you that kind of helped revolutionize this and say this is a fundamental truth and I, I'm on the right path here? I mean, there's a million books um, that you know, a million books. Um, you know that I have. You know. There's so many books like, um, you know, Napoleon Hill, Think Grow Rich, um, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, you know, the um, Norman Vincent Peale, you know, The Power of Positive Thinking, all of these classics that are really the foundation for mindset and understanding, because, you know, I learned that being poor was more of a mindset than it was a financial state of being. And, you know, and because it is really about perspective and, you know, it's, (laughs) um, there, there are a lot of books. I also, one of the things I think you have to guard your time, your time is so precious. And I, I read the no BS guide to time management, and that was really pretty profound because (laughs) you learned that, um, in, in your office, um, you are interrupted on average, like five to 10 times in an eight minute time period or something like that. And one day I actually counted it. I did my own experiment in my office when it was across the hall here in my clinic where everybody going down the hall, you know, could see in 
and, you know, and talk to me. I couldn't get anything done. And it was, I mean, I was interrupted like a million times in a five minute period. And so there were times I had to close the door, put my headphones on. But what I did is I changed where my office was. <laughs> so they still have access to me, but not direct access. And I can't see them and they can't directly see me. Um, but that way I can get things done. And I have designated times in which to get things done. Designated times that, you know, I'm working with them in the therapy rooms, things like that. But, you know, the, the biggest lesson is that you must guard your time. And that includes, you know, finding out information, listening to podcasts, you know, listening to, you know, information input. You can listen to all these great things and read all these things. But if you don't take notes and start implementing the things that you can do right now to start making positive change, none of those books, none of the podcasts, none of the gurus will matter. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's, it's, um, that reality of just like, I can't remember who does, who said it, but there's, there's a saying out there just like you can consume all of this content, all of this information, but if you're not implementing it, you're not doing anything with it. You know, it's just, there's no, there's no shifting of realities for those points. And people feel as if, you know, they go read that book, this book, that book, all these books will transform them. But the books all have the general same principles in them. They're just yeah. said in a different way. Right. And uh, yeah. And you have to do, you have to, um, you have to make some positive change. And so just, you know, what I've learned to do is just back off from a lot of it and simplify everything because we're so inundated with information and um, I mean, we live in a virtual world of Chuck E. Cheese where we are so overstimulated. <laughs> yeah. And so anyone who has kids knows immediately what I'm talking about. That was like my definition of insanity. It was a nightmare. Um, I, it was so overstimulating that if you didn't drink prior to going in, it made you want to drink when you left. <laughs> That's why they serve alcohol at Tucky T's now. It's a good thing because you had a lot of drunk parents. Um, <laughs> but that's the world we live in. And you wonder why so many people are medicated for ADD and ADHD. I don't think it's because of an internal um, problem. I think it's an external problem that we just don't know how to process and filter too much information coming in. And instead, we we keep putting more in because we don't know how to turn off the phone. We don't know how to turn off the TV. We don't know how to check out from everything because, you know, there's such a codependency created on all this. Um, actually, a, a really profound book that was written probably over 20 years ago. It's called Last Child Left in the Woods. And it I made that required reading in my classes and it talks about nature deficit disorder. And it talks about um, the lack of being in the natural environment, in the woods, out there playing, all of that has led directly to ADD, ADHD, anger management, anxiety, all of these things. And so if you don't take time to play and check out and filter out some of you know this over- you know, information world that we live in, 
You can't figure out how to process your next steps to be successful and just simplify things. I, I think we've made them too complicated and too many people say, well, you need to do this, 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 and this. You know, pick a couple things, accomplish that task, and then, you know, building blocks and just keep building from there. You don't have to do everything at once and you don't have to try to finish, get to the end before you've made the steps to, you know, all, all the in-between steps. Yeah, no, it's true. That That's an interesting book. I'm going to have to look into that, but that's, uh, and that's 2000. So I just looked it up. Says so 2005. That's oh, that's crazy. a remake then. That's a, yeah, that's a, probably a remake of it, but still that's, that's a long time ago. And now we're 10, 10, 10 you know, decades into that two two decades into that basically of where this book initially came out and just, Yeah. Yeah, where are we at now? My goodness, my goodness. Tanya, this has been good. We're coming to the tail end of the show. But first and foremost, I want to ask you one one last question. What words of wisdom would you say to some young person, maybe graduating high school, early 20s, coming into this world that we're in now, knowing what you know, knowing what you've learned, what is one piece of wisdom that you would pass on to that individual? One piece of wisdom? Gosh. I know, just one. Sorry. I think the one piece of wisdom is trust your gut. Trust your own intuition. If you get that spidey tingle, it's there for a reason. Whether it's, you know, in a situation with a person, um, the environment Trust your intuition. When we don't trust it, you get in trouble. And when you learn to trust your intuition about people, you will learn who to stay away from and who to be around. If you learn to trust it in a situation, in an environment, you will learn what is safe and what is unsafe. When you learn to trust yourself and your own intuition, then you will know in any environment around any person, what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Trust your gut. Trust, trust your intuition. I think that's a huge part of us and what we are and what we have the power to kind of focus into. And it's been ignored for so long. So I think that's a huge, huge component of that and just growing as a human species and and as a human in general. So Tanya, this has been really fun. Look, I'll tell you with trusting your intuition, a good book is called the blink. It's called blink. And it's, um, Tanya's yes. Full of books. And the premise of that is that everything you need to know about a person, you know, within the first 30 seconds, it's oh after gosh. that. When you're, yeah. When your ego gets involved and you start putting all the thoughts of society, Oh, don't judge that person. Don't do this. That person's a good person. And you always end up coming back to that first 30 seconds of meeting that person, you already knew what you needed to know. Wow. Wow. Well, hopefully we had a good first 30 seconds, Tanya. <laughs> it was an amazing first 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Tanya, this has been really fun. I've enjoyed this and uh, you've given a lot of good insight into just being a good person as well as your developmental stages of just helping others go through that same process. So for that, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun, and I hope somebody can, you know, learn from, you know, some of these words of, you know, I won't say wisdom, but just experience. That's right. And there we are. The conclusion of yet another riveting conversation brimming with insight and actual wisdom to help you harness the power of mindset. Are you inspired by Tanya's journey? Want to dive deeper into the world of professional and personal growth in entrepreneurship? Well, we are here for you. Learn more about our offerings, pose a question, continue the stimulating dialogue, connect with me and stand out for a guide of reference toward your prosperous and fulfilled existence. Reach us at hello at brianlesage.com. And until next time, never forget, your mindset isn't just a concept, it's a tool, an asset, a key. It's the gateway to unlocking your true capabilities. Stay inquisitive, stay empowered, and continue to refine and master the art of mindset.